Ruben sells Shimon a field, and Levi is one of the signatories as a witness. Well, Levi, a little later, the same Levi who was a signatory on the sale, comes and lodges an objection. And he argues, this guy, Ruben, he stole the field from me, says Levi. It's my field. Ain't shaming Levi. We don't listen to him. What do you mean it's your field? You signed the document saying Ruben sold it to Shimon. How could it be your field? You're drunk. We don't even look at the proof he brings. But even Koskusa, he lost all his rights. Why? Because we say to him, you have a shikana. Hey, Toy, how can you, on the one hand, be a witness on a sale, but tell you to on the other hand, come and lodge an objection? You're crazy, man. Also, if Levi signed as a witness on another document, not for Reuben's sale to Shimon, but for another document. I saw the plainly show Reuben, let's say it was Yehuda, a new guy. Yehuda's field is adjacent to Reuben's field from the east or from the west, making a reference to the fact that that's Reuben's field in a document. Also, I saw the Simon Laacher being that he made it as a reference in another document. He was the signatory. He was a witness. Even this, again, he loses his privilege to object that he is the owner. He can't complain. Shame because we say to him, Mister, how could you be a witness on the one hand to this document in which it is stated, that this in this field is adjacent to Reuben's field, and then a week or a year later to come back with Tarallah and lodge an objection. So this is the law. It's the law. Based to what if the witness claims and argues and says, You don't get it. I didn't say this is. Reuben's field. Tell him, There's one row in Reuben's field, one row in that field that I used as a, an indicator in that other agreement for Yehuda. I never indicated that the whole field belonged to him. And he says here, a stretch of earth large enough to plant nine kabim of rain. That's the minimum size of a field. Nothing smaller could have been referred to as a field. So when I say field, I meant a tiny little field, one row. What I meant to say is just that row is Reuben's, but the rest is mine. Aha! Good argument. Good, good explanation. It's an argument that sounds right. It's, 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 it's well. He can now lodge an objection and claim the whole field is his, except for that role. All of the above is only applicable if it's one of the two witnesses who signed a document. But if the claim is that you, lady, were a judge, you validated, you authenticated this document, you're a judge. You're one of the three judges who signed authenticating this document. Is that a problem? No. You can still lodge a complaint. Why? Because any judge could always argue and say, listen, when I validate a document, I don't validate a document. When I authenticate a document, I don't authenticate a document. I authenticate witnesses' signatures. I'm not obligated to read the document. I'm just the signatures. Like a document, the truth, I don't know what it says in the document, nor do I need to know. It's none of my business. Because what the judges need to do is authenticate signatures. They don't have to read it. But not so. A witness has to read it. They call you up to a wedding and they tell you, sign this. Take it and read it. Make sure it's the right room and the right bride. Witnesses should read what they're signing. Otherwise, you may just have given your house away. Oh, you, must have just, you may have just agreed to pay for the party, to pay for the whole thing. But witnesses in Chesim and should never sign a document. Unless they read the whole thing, the adoptable boy, and they are meticulously cautious about the details. Next scenario, very interesting. What if Shimon comes to Levi, and he says to him, listen, my friend Levi, we go back a long way. I want some advice from you. I saw the plane, I'm about to purchase this in this field from Reuben, and he shows him the lot description. If you advise me to buy it, I'll buy it. If you don't advise me to buy it, I won't. What do you say? Should I buy it? Levi, Levi said, yeah, good deal. Lechel Kneya said, go buy it. Favor, it's wonderful. Now, can Levi come back a week or a month or a year later and object and say, is this field? When he just advised him to buy it. From Reuben. The answer is yes, he can. Why? Pourquoi? Yes, Levi, Levi can still object. Levi, excuse did not lose his right. Why? I'm glad you asked. Shari, also nice because he didn't do anything. All he did is spoke. He said, it's a good field. Buy it. So he says to Michigan, why did you tell me to buy it if you say it's yours? Because he could have said it. Because he could say, it's beneficial for me if you buy it. Because I want it to leave the ownership of Reuben. 
Shehu Alam, because Reuben is a mafia guy. And I'm afraid of him. He's a strong man, a starker, a bully. I know it's mine. I'd rather you own it with you. I'll have a good time. Kedeshet Ben Abadin, I'll demand it in a court of law. I'm afraid to take Reuben to court. And I'll take possession of my field. And again, some commentary say, I, you paid for it? We'll work it out. I'm not trying to hurt you. So it's to my advantage that you buy the field. Reuben, Reuben objected to Shimon, Shimon, Shimon said, Reuben, Mr. A comes to Mr. B and says, Hey, you're in my field. Get out of my field. Get out of here. The Shimon, Shimon said, That's what they used to say in Newark when I was a kid. Get out of here. Shimon says, I don't know what you're talking about. That's Brooklyn. I don't know what you're talking about. Ella saw the Zubi, Levi, the Kartia. I, Shimon, bought this field from Levi. And here are witnesses that I utilized it and enjoyed its produce for three years. Amar le Reuben, Reuben can say to him, Really? I have witnesses, that you came to me in the evening. And you said to me, Sell me this field. Here you're claiming you bought the field from Levi. You came to me and said, I should sell you the field. And here are witnesses. So your claims are a little drunk. This is no proof. Why not? Why is Shimon buying fields from Levi and the same field from Reuben? Shimon can say, listen, I really need this field. I heard that you have claims to it. I wanted to buy it from you. That you should never object that it's yours. If you have any ownership to it, I bought it. You shouldn't sue me in court. I never admitted that you have a real claim. I just want you out of my life. I really need this field. The fact that he came and offered to buy it from Reuben, because Reuben had a claim to it. It doesn't mean that he didn't buy it from Levi. And to prove that Reuben has a claim to it, he's claiming it. Later on, Shimon Tainazu, if Shimon does not give this argument, and Tainan later, we don't give him the idea of making this argument. Hey, Ruben, she if Ruben objects, maybe he can have brought witnesses, she should just sell the Zushal that it's his field. Next scenario. Shimon is in the field, claims, you sold it to me. Ruben comes to Shimon and says, It's my field. Shimon says, Yeah, but you sold it to me. Good claim. And I enjoyed it for three years or more, so I don't even have to have my documents. Then Ruben and Ruben says, Ha! Ha! You enjoyed it for three years or more? You're a thief because you stole it from me. Because you robbed it from me. Whether there are witnesses that he enjoyed the produce. There's only one witness that, that testifies that he ate Shalosh in three years. He does not have to return the produce. Why? Because his claim is, I ate my produce. And there are no witnesses that saw him eat produce that could say you ate the other guy's produce. It's his admission that he ate produce. Because he himself admitted why is this witness coming and saying that he ate for three years? He's just coming to reinforce the power of the person who benefited. In fact, if he had a second witness, he could have kept the field. Therefore, this is an interesting case. As it relates to the body of the field itself, Reuben can take a rabbinic oath of Hesus that he never sold it. And therefore, it reverts back to him. Why? Because Shimon does not have a good claim with witnesses. However, Shimon has Shimon can take a rabbinic oath of Hesus. He owes nothing of the produce. The important, he's exempt from restoration of the produce. So Reuben gets to keep the field. Shimon gets to keep the produce. But what if there were two witnesses who testify about Shimon that he enjoyed the produce for less than three years, which would be a chazaka? He doesn't have a chazaka. That changes everything. He must restore all the produce that he consumed. Even one witness must restore. Why? Because he's not conflicting. He's not objecting to what the witness says. The witness says he ate produce, and he says, and he says I ate produce. What he's saying is, MSA, this one witness testified truth. And I ate produce for two years, but I ate my own. Well, this is the problem. He needs to swear because when there's one witness, but he can't possibly take an oath because he agrees with what the witness is saying. You don't take an oath when you agree. Therefore, Mashalim has no choice he has to pay. Zion, 7 out of 10. Anyone who's obligated to restore produce. Now the question is, how much produce did I eat that you want me to restore? How much do I owe you? Send me a bill. How are you doing if it's unknown? The courts can't even estimate based on the amount. Like the neighbors, houses, or fields, or others, you can't even hire an appraiser. 
It was the fruits of an orchard or a tree, which are not really known, and neighbor's properties will not illuminate it. Being that clearly there's no definite claim here, you only so much or so much money when there's no definite claim. But there is an admission. In that case, the fellow has to pay whatever he admits. So if he admits to one apple, that's what he has to pay. However, the court issues a ban of ostracism. Who claims he ate very little, but really he, he consumed a lot of produce, refuses to pay. He's ostracized, excommunicated, which is a very serious thing in Jewish life. People run from that. What if somebody is required to return property? He had possession of property, and the law requires him to return it, to relinquish and return. What if he rented it to others while he had it? And the renters are alive and well. You come to the renter and say, listen, I got bad news for you. You were paying rent to the wrong guy. And you give it to the rightful owner. And I says, what? I was paying rent to the wrong guy? I'm going to sue him. You should. He should sue him for renting him the Brooklyn Bridge. You can't rent somebody something that's not yours. And if you do, there's a word for it. It's called a con man. It's called a thief. Tess, now in 9 and 10, which are the closing paragraphs, not only of this chapter, but of this set of laws, there is a very important law. And that is, even for a good reason, we don't lie in court. We don't make fictitious claims just because our lawyer tells us to. Also, the other lifting tiny shekel is forbidden for a person to lodge a false claim. Why would somebody lodge a false claim? Because he wants to get to the right judgment. Either to pervert judgment or to prevent its execution. For example, what's the scenario we're talking about? If somebody knows for a fact, Mr. A knows for a fact that Mr. B owes him $100 or $100,000, not even a question. And he knows Mr. B is going to say, no, I don't. How do you prove it? You don't. You can't prove it. There's nothing you could do in a case like that. You, I owe you, you owe me money? I don't. Have a good day. The guy comes up with a brilliant idea. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to demand 200 from him. And if he admits that he owes me 100, not 200, he'll have to take an oath. Uh-huh. That way, I'll get my 100 back. Or if he was demanding 100 to Tony Masai, and he argued 200, he shouldn't say, I will deny everything in the court, so I don't have to take oaths. Then later in the cafe, I'll whisper in his ear, and I'll say, I do owe it to you, in order that I don't have to take an oath, and I'll pay him the money. In all these scenarios, lies are not permitted. Similar scenario. There are three people who are claiming from the same guy that he owes them 100. The couple of them, he denies all of them. Why does he deny? You have Mr. A and Mr. B and Mr. C. All come to Mr. D and say, guys, you owe 100. So they come up with an idea. One of them should be the fellow who demands the plaintiff. Two of them should be witnesses. And then they'll get 100. They'll split it. So everybody, the three of them, will get 100 back. Because he owes 100 to all three of them. So they each split it. That's good. I, mean, I believe what it means is that he owes a total of 100 to all three. So that's a good plan, how they can get their hundred back. Otherwise, they'll never have a chance of getting their hundred back. It's wonderful, except that it's forbidden. But what may look from any situation such as this and others? Is it a cause of the Torah admonishes? The Almighty says, Midvar Sheker Tircha, keep a distance from words of falsehood, even though you're trying to beat a con man at his own game. Don't lie in court. And we have concluded, Toyin Benitan with Mazel Brachas, Nikolu Hilchis This concludes the laws of litigation. Uh, plaintiff and defendant, with the help of Hashem, with Mazel Brachas. And before we turn it off, we have one set of laws left remaining for Book 13, and that is the laws of inheritance, and with God's help, we will pick up on it next time, end of chapter 16, and end of laws of litigation. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Gilchais, Nachlais, or Nacholais, the laws of inheritance, very exciting, as we begin a new section, and this is the last section of book 13 of the Rambam, so with Mazel Brocha, as we go through 11 chapters, we will have completed, Bezrat Hashem, with the help of Hashem, book 13 of 14, they be with Mazel Brocha. The laws of inheritance, Nachlais, or Nacholais, is a very interesting section of laws. I find it interesting because I'm just a simple guy from New Jersey. I find it interesting because it is so different from the inheritance laws that we are accustomed to in the Western world. Torah laws are very unique when it comes to inheritance laws. Mitzvahs, ase, achas, one positive commandment, vihi, and it is. Din, seder, nachles, or nacholes, the laws of inheritance, obey your mitzvahs, and the explanation of this commandment, the trokim elu, in the upcoming chapters. Now I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction to the laws of inheritance. Introduction number one, point number one. 
there are two places in the Torah where the Torah speaks about inheritance. At least two places, two major places. One is in the beginning of the portion of Kitetze, where it talks about if a man will have two wives, one that he likes and one that he despises, and he'll have a firstborn son from the wife he despises. He cannot choose not to give the firstborn son, even though he doesn't like the kid, doesn't like his mother. His right of Kishnayim, a double portion. Because by Torah law, and that's the source, Becher, Neutel, Kishnayim, a firstborn son, gets twice as much as a regular son. Which means, in simple terms, if somebody has four sons, they divide his estate in five, the oldest son gets parts one and two, double, and the other three gets three, four, and five. Oldest son must get double out of the estate. And here I want to, as I like to say, in my other classes, I want to push the pause button, and I'd like to point out something very important and central to these laws. During the lifetime of a man, he can give anything he has to anyone, to the son he likes, to the son he doesn't like, to somebody else's son, to the cousin, to the neighbor, to the mailman. A person can give anything he has to anyone. There are many laws we learned in great detail in the laws of acquisitions, where the Torah gives a special ability to a man on his dying deathbed to say at the last moment, give this to this, and this, 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 to this one. This is not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the man didn't do any of that, and he died. So now the laws take over. Once the law, the estate laws take over. Once the laws take over, there is the Torah law of double to the firstborn. You want to avoid that? You give everything away during your lifetime. No problem. The second source is the idea that this Torah system is that sons inherit. Ordinarily, daughters do not inherit. And we find logic for that. And that is that the system the Torah set up is a system of a United States of Israel, 12 states. Each tribe is a state. Reuben, Shimon, and so on and so forth. And therefore, the woman marries her husband who is affiliated with a particular tribe. If she's going to inherit her father's property, then she's going to drag the property of Yehuda into Zvon if she marries a guy from Zvon. That's the logic background. Now, the Torah section of the daughter of Tzlovchot, or the daughters of Tzlovchot, repeated a few times in the Torah, contributes the revolutionary law of if there is no son, the daughter inherits instead of the son. But, bimkom ben yoreshet, that when there is no son, the daughter does inherit. That is another source in Torah law. So we have two ideas in Torah law. Number one, the firstborn gets Pishnayim, gets double. Number two, ordinarily a daughter does not inherit because she is supported by her husband and his family when she marries. However, if there is no son, bas bin kombein, your the daughter becomes, takes the place of the son. I, I state again that if somebody wants to avoid these laws, no problem. He just deals with everything in his lifetime and he can do whatever he wants to. The other factor, briefly, is that we're told that these laws were given by Hashem. There's no necessary logic or reason. It is what it is. Okay, let's learn. Pay the creation, chapter one. The Rambam builds a building as he always does. Say the nachles or nachles kachu, the order of inheritance, which is a mitzvah in the Torah, is as follows. If somebody dies, his sons shall inherit him. So that number one heir is a man's sons. They come before everyone, even before the wife. The wife is not an heir of the husband. It was not a community property state. It is community property during the couple's lifetime, but when he dies, it goes to the sons. And as we have learned, there is an obligation upon the sons. They have to give a generous stipend to their mother and their sisters from the estate. But they are the heirs, as we have learned and as we will learn. They take precedence over everyone. And whenever they are male children, they take precedence over female children. When there are no male children, the daughter does take the place of the son and she becomes a full heir. Base too. Ordinarily, a female, a daughter, does not have a share in the inheritance with the male. The male son takes precedence. If he has no children, what happens if somebody passes away? Childless. He did not disperse his estate. He did not give away his estate. Distribute his estate. This is interesting, and we're building a building in Jewish law. If somebody, if a man dies without children, who inherits his estate? His father. Not his mother. Inheritance is from son, from father to son, and from son to father. Why? Pourquoi? This is handed down by the oral tradition from God to Moshe. There are no reasons given. Gimel. Which is my understanding in general when he talks about this idea of from tradition that it's not necessarily a logical law although I explained a little bit of what I believe to be the logic in this system. Now, who takes precedence in inheritance? Those people who are considered blood descendants, offspring, children, they take precedence. Therefore, 
if someone dies, Beish, whether a man dies, Beish or a woman dies, if either of them left a son, Yeresh Hakel, the son or sons, inherit the whole thing. If there is no son anywhere in the world, this guy didn't have a son, not from this marriage, not from another marriage. What do we do then? We look at the children of the son. Let's say this fellow, this man or woman had a son. His name was Moshe. And Moshe passed away at the age of 30, God forbid, and he left children. So we go to Moshe's children, even though Moshe is not alive anymore. It doesn't matter. Because his son's sons take his place. If his son had offspring, as we will learn, when we talk about offspring, it makes no difference whether they were male or female. Why? Because if there is a male, the male gets it all. But if there is no male, the female gets it all. Because of the principle of when there is no son, the daughter inherits. Therefore, if Moshe, who passed away, had a daughter, who had a daughter, this, this is fine. It's offspring. Even the daughter of the daughter of his son. Until the end of time. It's fine. He, she gets it all. Son takes precedence. There is no son. Daughter. There is no son or daughter. Grandson. Granddaughter. Great-granddaughter. Great-great-granddaughter. Daughter, daughter, daughter. Sold it. Now, what if this son, which we just talked about, had no children? We said the inheritance goes to the son or the children of the son, even the daughter of the son. What if this son, this, the guy never had a son? Or if he did have a son, he had no children. Then and only then do we go to, his, to the person who passed away's daughter. If he has a daughter and no son, that's great. She gets the whole thing. She inherits it all. Why? If there is no son, the daughter is a full heir. If he doesn't have a daughter living, what do you do now? You see if the daughter had daughters. Or sons. You see if the daughter had children. If she never had children, whether male or female, you go to the end of time. Who? He inherits everything. What if this daughter never had children? So the son had no children. The son who passed away had no children. The daughter who passed away never had children or has no living children or children's children. Now, the inheritance, the right to inherit this man who just passed away, goes back to his father. His father is no, no longer alive. That's not a problem. Then we go to his father's children. We look at the children of the father. There's another way of saying children of the father. The brother of the person who passed away. That, that's the child of his father. If he has a brother, how does his inheritance get to his brother? Because it goes to his father and then to the father's son. This is an amazing building. And these are complex laws in Torah, but they're all logical. And this is what we're laying out here. We look at the children of the father, which are the brothers of the man who passed away. If the man who passed away has a brother, or he has no brother, but the brother once lived and he had sons, he gets it all. Because it goes from the man who passed away to his father who passed away, to his son, the brother who passed away, to his children. If he had no brother or sister who ever lived, who had children left in the world, Let's say this in other words. His father never had children that are still living or grandchildren. What do we do now? Who does his estate go to? The answer is, if we can't effectively have his father be an heir, then we go to his grandfather. We keep going back. The estate goes to his grandfather, who's probably not living, and then we go to the descendants of his grandfather. Who are the uncles, the brother of his father who passed away. So in other words, as the Rambam will say, in Jewish law, everyone has an heir, even if we have to go back to Abraham. Because you keep going back, 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 down, down, down which means that the pool gets bigger with first cousins, second cousins, third cousins, fourth cousins, fifth cousins. No one has no heir. But the order of precedence we learned. Ma'ayin, we look into Al-Zerashal, Aviyah, the children of the grandfather, what, what grandfather? Paternal grandfather. Shehein Achei, Aviv Shameis, the brothers of the father of the person who passed away. And always, the Hascharim, Kaidim, and the male takes precedence over the female. Vizarin, Shoscharim, Kaidim, and the and the offspring of the male take precedence over the female, which means that if there is a son anywhere, his offspring, even if they are granddaughters, take precedence over the son's sister, as the law was with the children of the person who passes away himself. As we said earlier, Mr. A passes away, he leaves a son, it goes to his son. The son dies, it goes to the son's children, even if they are daughters. If the son left no children, it then goes to his sister, to the daughter of the man who passed away. What if his father never had brothers? Not them, and not their offspring, you keep going back. The inheritance, the estate keeps traveling back. Generation up, up, up. Grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, and then comes back down. 
And the estate keeps journeying, even if you have to go back to Jacob's son, Reuben, to the tribes, to the 12 tribes. Commentary say, why does the Rambam talk about Reuben, who's the oldest of the 12 tribes? Let him talk about Yaakov. Not every Jew descends from Reuben, but every Jew descends from Yaakov. The answer is that he wants to tell us that we have a tradition that every one of the tribes survived and no one disappeared. Therefore we say, although you know, we lost 10 tribes, we don't know where they are. I mean, we know they're the Chumash Indians in Agura. So we say, always son takes precedence over daughter. Any offspring shall bang of the son, take precedence over Daughter, daughter takes precedence over grandfather. The Rambam is now going back and giving the rules. Any offspring of the daughter, take precedence to her father's father, or to his father, to her father's father. The father of the person who passed away, takes precedence to the brothers, because they are offspring. The brother always takes precedence over the sisters. And the offspring of the brother, takes come before the sisters. However, sisters take precedence over grandfather. Because whenever there is no son, we go to daughter. All the offspring of the brother proceed the sisters. Sisters take precedence to the father of the father. Anyone of the offspring of the sisters take precedence to her father's father. The father of the father comes before to the brothers of the father of the person who passed away. And his father's brothers takes precedence to the sister of the father. Anyone who is a blood child of the brothers of the father takes precedence to the sisters of the father. And the sisters of the father take precedence to the father of the father of the father. Of the person who passed away. So also, in the same logic, anyone who is a descendant of the sister of his father, come first, to a grandfather. Because you always go to the generation and then go back down. You can't go back down, you go up another generation. And whenever there is no son, you go to daughter. Therefore, Jewish inheritance law keeps traveling up to the top of all generations. Therefore, you cannot say that a Jew died and left no heirs. There is no Jew who dies without heirs. Every Jew has an heir. The question is, do you have to travel to brothers, Sisters, first cousins, second cousins, third cousins, fifth cousins, everybody's related to everybody ultimately. You just have to take the journey properly. There, is, there are charts outlining order of presence. Now we get into details. Dalit, Mishanay, somebody passes away, and leaves a daughter. Ubas and his son died, but his son had a daughter, so he has a daughter, and a granddaughter from his son. Even the daughter of the daughter of the daughter of the son. Ad save Kamadeus until the end of many generations. He Kedemes, his son, who died, his offspring. Even his daughter, which means the man who passed away's son's daughter, granddaughter, takes precedence over the man's daughter because the granddaughter from the son takes the place of the son who takes precedence over the daughter, which, you know, doesn't make the sister very happy. But, you know, thank God she's in therapy. He condemns the granddaughter takes precedence, which she'll inherit it all. The Engla Bas and the daughter has nothing. I say again, therefore, by and large, people distributed their wealth during their lifetime. So these laws never kick in. Who I deem the same law is Labas to the daughter of a brother. If the brother becomes the primary heir, Imhoach is with sisters. The brother's offspring, even the daughter, come before the brother's sister. Which is his sister? Well, the boss Ben Achiyoviv and the daughter of the son of the brother of his father, Achiyoviv, with his father's sister, or anything similar. And again, these laws seem very unfair, but this is the system as outlined. Misha Hayolishnei Bonim, if somebody had two sons, or Mesha Hashnei Bonim, if during his lifetime, the two sons passed away. One of the two sons left three sons. So the man's son who passed away had three sons. The second son left one daughter. So now this fellow has no children. Three grandchildren from Mr. A-son. One granddaughter from Mr. B-son. In our scenario is that the grandfather now died. So he has four grandchildren, three grandsons from son number one, one granddaughter from son, from daughter, one granddaughter from son number two. What happens is, and this is an important law, do you think these four grandchildren inherit equally? No, they don't. Because his sons, though they may be dead, are equal heirs. So one son left three children. Well, these three children have to divide his half of the estate. Why? Because he gets half. And the daughter of the other son, he gets the other half. So here's a case where the female gets three times as much as her male cousins. Why? Because she takes the place of her father, and her father is dead, and he has no sons. So voila, she gets it all. So she gets half the estate, her three cousins have to share the other half. 
Why? Because each of the sons, though they may be dead, inherit the estate of their father. The same goes for the sons of the brothers, and the sons of the father's brothers. is going all the way back to Abraham Now there's another Torah law which comes from God's decree. When it comes to inheritance, we're talking about paternal inheritance by the father. Although in many laws, how do you decide a firstborn? The child who opens the womb of his mother. Right? The child who opens the womb of his mother. Like a Pidron Aben. The child who opens the, the firstborn child to the mother. Not in the state laws. In the state laws, we don't deal with the mother. It's all paternal. Mishpacha so ain't the family of the mother, ain't a Korea Mishpacha. For our purposes of these laws, is not family. Therefore, if somebody wants to leave something to the family of the mother of his children, you've got to do it before you die. The ain't Yerushal, the of the biblical laws of inheritance only kick in to paternal relatives. The people, therefore, are Achimiraim, brothers who are maternal brothers. Sometimes you have three brothers who share the same mother, but they have different fathers. And says that they do not inherit one another because there is no estate connection with maternal brothers. And paternal brothers, Yeshin says, inherit one another. Whether his brother is only paternal, or he has a full brother, makes no difference. We don't care for the purpose of this law who the mother is. What we care is who the father is. So a paternal half-brother is the same as a full brother, as long as it shares the father. Now, what if somebody had an illegitimate son, a son he should have never had? From a forbidden relationship, adulterous, incestual, or what have you. As my teacher, Rabbi Shvei of blessed memory, from whom I was, I received one of the three rabbis ordained, used to say, he says, we don't make a kiddush in his honor. We don't give him shishi, or even shlishi, we don't call him up for the sixth aliyah, which is the desirable, or even the third aliyah. But the law is the law. Call hakrevin ba'avero, any relatives, although they are not, they are sinful relatives. This relationship should have never happened, it violates serious Torah laws. Yes, and they do inherit takshed in my kosher children. The fact that one has an illegitimate child, the child of an incestuous relationship, God forbid, or an adulterous relationship, God forbid, doesn't mean it's not a son. It just means it's a mamzer son who has full inheritance rights. Ketzad, for example. If he had a son who was a mamzer, let's just define once again for the purposes of Jewish law. What is the meaning of a mamzer? The meaning of a mamzer is not the son of an unwed mother. That's not a mamzer. The meaning of a mamzer is the son of an incestuous or adulterous relationship. Let's speak English. If somebody lives with his sister and has a child, that's a mamzer. That's incestuous. Somebody lives with his mother-in-law and has a child. That's incestuous. If somebody lives with a woman who's married to another man and has a child, that's incestuous. That's adulterous, rather. So he had a son who was a mamzer. A och mamzer or a brother who was a mamzer. For the purposes of inheritance laws, makes no difference. For the purpose of inheritance. Why? Because it is a son by Jewish law, albeit illegitimate. However, if it's not a son by Jewish law, what is an example of someone who has a son, but not by Jewish law? An example is somebody who marries an non-Jew. A man marries a non-Jewish woman. She could be a wonderful lady, but she's not Jewish. So legally, it's not his son even though biologically it is. Or from a shifcha, from a maidservant, we learned the halachic categories of avodim, of servants and maidservants, fellow concerts with his female servant, and they have children. They're not his children, because she's not Jewish. I mean, anochris, or a Jewish man, consorts or marries or has a relationship with a non-Jewish woman. Very nice. I mean, it's intermarriage, but it's not a son. When I say very nice, that was a facetious statement. For halachic purposes, it's not a son. And he's not at all an heir, although he's a biological son. Again, the reason people distribute their wealth during their lifetime is for these laws. A woman is not an heir in her husband's estate at all. Therefore, a man who cares about his wife should not leave it to the estate laws. Although by rabbinic law, the husband inherits the possessions of his wife. By rabbinic law. The debate is if it's rabbinic law or if it's biblical law. The who and he takes precedence before everyone in inheriting her estate. Even though he would be he would have married a woman who is prohibited to him. He married a woman, Torah says he shouldn't have married. Nevertheless, he inherits her estate. What's an example of a woman? Torah says he shouldn't have married. Almond of the a high priest marries a widow. Grusha Bachalutsa, divorced woman. Or a woman who had Khalitsa performed upon her, the Kohen to a regular coin. Even though she is a minor, and even though the husband is deaf, who he does 
have the benefit of being the heir of his wife's estate. We did explain already in the laws of marriage that this law of the husband inheriting the estate of his wife does not kick in until it's a full marriage. Once upon a time, there were two stages of marriages. Betrothal, where there was a legal marriage, but they did not live together, and marriage, where they actually married and lived together. This inheritance law does not kick in until there's a full marriage. Furthermore, we explain there's a healthy man who married a female, deaf, mute, by Torah law, that's not a marriage. Rabbinic law said, let it be a marriage. So rabbinic law can't kick in this inheritance. But I feel in this pakal, even if she became healthy, we beyond we explain, that he does inherit the possessions of his wife, which came to her possession as owner, and she has ownership of it, over whether possession she brought in as part of her dowry, or she did not. Omission is gosh's supplications, a woman who's divorced. Perhaps, because there was a legal question, she died, because it was doubt, the husband does not inherit her estate. Now we learned earlier that by Torah law, a man can marry a young girl with the permission of her father. In some cases, when he marries her, when she is fatherless, when she comes to the age of majority, when she reaches bas mitzvah, she can say, I'm not interested in this marriage, and walk away. That's called miun. Sometimes, she is so young that she doesn't even have to say, I'm not interested in this marriage. She just walks away. Because the whole idea of marriage is absurd at that young age, which would be like six years old or younger. So therefore, he says now, if a man married a minor girl, She's so young, she doesn't even have to say, I'm not interested. But automatically there is no marriage. He also cannot inherit her estate. Because there is no marriage law. It never happened. She was too young. And so also, someone who's not mentally balanced, who married a healthy woman, or a healthy man, who married a woman who's not mentally balanced. This is not a marriage. Because it's not a marriage, he also does not inherit her estate. Because for this type of marriage, even our sages did not ordain a rabbinic marriage. A husband whose wife died, following the death of his wife, he married the daughter of a millionaire. Okay? He married Bill Gates' daughter, the Jewish Bill Gates. <laughs> and then his wife who passed away, her husband, her father dies. Or her brother. One of the people that she inherits from. Now the question is, does he inherit from his dead wife's estate? She died. The answer is no. If you want to inherit from your wife's estate, make sure she's living. From her money. The husband cannot inherit. Who gets it? Who gets it? Her children. She had children. She has no children. It goes back to her father's family. Here comes a rule, an axiomatic rule in inheritance. Because a husband never inherits possessions that will come. He has to inherit possessions that are. Only possessions that already came into the estate before she dies. A husband never inherits his wife's estate. If he died first, the husband never inherits from the wife when he's in the grave. Unlike everything we learned before, that the father is father's father, they don't have to be living to inherit and have to come back down. In the case of a husband, it only works when he's alive. Kate's for example, Baal Shemesh, the husband dies first. And then later in time, the wife dies. And we do not say, being that during his lifetime, the husband took precedence over every other heir. So now, the husband's heirs should take precedence. No, sir, Now, the heirs of the woman, even if they happen to be from her father's house, her cousins, her nieces, or whatever, they inherit. Why do I say cousins or nieces? If she has no children or grandchildren. As long as she died after her husband. 13, the closing paragraph of this chapter, so also. A son does not inherit his mother's estate from the grave. In order to bequeath it, so to speak, to his bro- to his paternal brothers. Gateside. Spell it up. If somebody died, and then his mother died, they don't say, being that if he was still living, he would take precedence, because it's his mother's estate. His offspring take precedence. No, because he died. His paternal brothers inherit his mother after he dies, rather than his children. The offspring of her sons, who is she, will inherit. If he had sons, if he didn't, it reverts back to her father's family. But if the mother died first, and then the son died, even if he was a one-day-old baby, and he was a premature birth, but he lived for at least a day. Being that he lived after his mother, even an hour, he died, so he died after his mother died. 
His mother bequeathed it to him. He lived for an hour. He doesn't have it. His mother's estate, even though he's gone now. But he lived for one hour. And he takes over the chain of inheritance, and it goes back to his father's 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 father, and their children. End of chapter 1. Rambam, Mishneh Torah. Hilchais, the laws of Nachlois. Inheritance, or Nachlois. Pedic Shani, chapter 2. Now we come to the law of firstborn. The firstborn gets double inheritance with the possessions of his father. Again, in the estate. During the lifetime, the father can do whatever he wants. During the lifetime, he can give everything away and leave nothing for the firstborn. In a person's lifetime, it's a free country. It's only after he dies that the estate laws of Torah kick in, and they are very definite and very definitive. Shanem, as it says, in the laws of the despised son, which I mentioned in my introduction to chapter 1, it says to give him double. He must give the firstborn double. Ketzat, for example, the Rambam spells it out. If a man left five sons, and one of them is a firstborn. So, in plain English, you divide the estate into six. The oldest son takes a third of the money. Why? Because a third is two-sixths. Basic mathematics. The oldest son gets a third, which is two-sixths. And the rest of the four non-firstborn sons get a sixth each. If he leaves nine sons, the firstborn takes a fifth, which is two-tenths. And every one of the eight non-firstborn take one-tenth. This is the system we follow forever. Which means the number of sons that are left, you add one, you divide, and voila! What if a firstborn was born after the father died? Or while his father is dying? He does not get double. It says, On the day that he distributes his wealth, then he must recognize the firstborn, even of the hated mother. But if he was not yet born, this firstborn, then we go to the old inheritance system where the estate moves where it has to. In Yotzos, if his forehead came out of the womb during the lifetime of his father, even though the entire head did not, only after the death, he receives double. Gimel, if a child was born and you're not sure of the gender, which we learned extensively about later. Later, the area around the genitals was cut, and it is ascertained that this baby is a male. He does not get double, because at the time we didn't know if it was a male. And a plain child who was cut, his skin was cut in Imsa and was found male, he does not reduce the portion of the firstborn who was already identified as a firstborn. As it says, the sons will be born to him. It has to be a son from the moment of birth in order to reduce the portion of the firstborn. What do we mean does not reduce? So the Rambam spells out a scenario. What if somebody had a firstborn son? And two regular sons. And then we have this undefined son whose skin was later cut and revealed as a male. So the question is, are there two other sons in addition to the firstborn or are there three? The firstborn takes a quarter of the portion, which means we treat it as if there was firstborn plus two, which means we divide the estate into four. The firstborn takes two-fourths. Oh, I'm sorry, the firstborn takes one-fourth. As if he only has these two regular brothers, and the other three-quarters, the two regular, divided in together with the other, together with the firstborn. So here he has a different system of division. Hey, cotton echad, a offspring of one day old, does, does cause the firstborn to have less because one day old is existing. But not a fetus. A fetus does not diminish the right of the firstborn. Or a son born after the death of the father. Never reduces the portion of the firstborn. What if there's a son who was born? We're not sure if he's a firstborn or a non-firstborn. How could that be? If he got mixed up with another child. There were twins that are born and they got mixed up. Two cousins that were born and two children, whatever it is. Not cousins, but two Wives who had a child at the same time, they got mixed up. Even Nathan doesn't get double. The case of so what do you do? At one point in time, we knew that this was the firstborn, and then later we lost track. 
There's a good system. They, you write a power of attorney from one to the other, that this one gives the other one power of attorney, the other one gives this one power of attorney, so either way they share, and they take the firstborn portion, together with their brothers, so between them they get three portions. But if they were never recognized as a firstborn, they were born in one tunnel, in one dark place, and we never were able to tell the difference. In that case, we don't have even one identified one, in case we don't do this contract, there is no double portion. The plot thickens. Me, Shai, Yolashin, Ebonim. If somebody had two sons, Chayyim, Boshim, the firstborn, and a non-firstborn, and Meshushin, Ebonim, died, the Chayyim in his lifetime. Me, Nichol, Boshim, and they left sons. Chayyim, Yerbas. The firstborn left the daughter. Boshim, Yerbas, and the non-firstborn left the son. Chayyim, Ben, Boshim, Yerush, Yerush, Ben, Yerush, Azok, and Shlish. So the son of the non-firstborn inherits his grandfather's estate one third. Chayyim, Yerbas, which is the portion that his father would have inherited, because his father was not a firstborn. Boshim, Chayyim, but the daughter of the firstborn, whose father is was a firstborn, Yerush inherits Shlish in two thirds. Chayyim, Yerbas, which is the portion of her father, who was a firstborn. So that works after death of the father as well, meaning after the death of the person of the estate's son who left grandchildren. The same law applies with sons of the brothers. And sons of the father's brother. All heirs. If the father of one of these heirs was firstborn, the one who inherits because of that person who passed away was a firstborn, gets his double estate. This is for father. Does the same work for an inheriting mother? No. The firstborn does not take double. In the possessions of this firstborn's mother. Case has, for example, the firstborn, the portion, and the non-firstborn. Shayarshu, who together are the heirs of Iman, their mother. Here they divide equally. They both get him. This applies whether the son was a firstborn, as we said earlier. Paternal. Relating to the laws of inheritance or one who opens the mother's womb, it doesn't matter. There is no firstborn inheritance law with regard to inheriting the mother, no matter why you're a firstborn. Test, how do we define how this works? The firstborn of inheritance, a firstborn for the purposes of inheritance, who means the child, the son who was born of to his father, Rishon first. Shanaman as it says, he is the beginning of his father's strength. First offspring. We don't look at the mother. The mother could have had many children before from a different husband. I feel the older Kamabon, even if the mother had many children prior, we are concerned that this is the father's first, the unique inheritance law. He gets double. For other purposes, like picking up Ben, we're interested in the mother. Now, what if the child is born after? Stillborn babies are born. In other words, the father had sons, but they died before they were born. They were stillborn. Even though they're stillborn, put his head out of the womb while he was still alive, but then was born stillborn. The child who follows him, the next child of his father, is the firstborn. Why? Because the father never had a living child born. It was the child who poked his head out by the time he was born, he was stillborn. So also a full-term pregnancy child. Where his head came out of the womb, dead, he was full-term, but he was not living. Being that he was not living, the next child is a firstborn for the purposes of inheritance. This is what it says, the beginning of his strength, defined as a father who never had born to him, vlod and offspring, who came out living into the world. A full-term offspring, who put the majority of his head outside of the womb. What is the difference here? Full-term, full-term, head out, at that moment living, that's considered a life, and the one afterwards is not considered a firstborn, even though by the time it was born, it died. Now here comes a very important law in Jewish law, which has its place in many, many aspects, and that is Caesarean birth, non-vaginal birth. By Torah law, birth is the child who opens the womb. Caesarean takes the secret path out through the stomach. A child who's born out of the wall, that's literal, or Caesarean section, C-section. Or any child that follows the C-section child, the next child of his father, they're both not firstborn. Arishan the first, because a C-section for the purpose of halacha is not considered a normal birth. I mean, obviously it's a birth, it's a walking child, a living child, but not for the purposes of Jewish law. And now it says, he will have children born to him. This is not a normal natural birth. C-section is a surgery. 
Rashani and the second child, following the C-section child, he's not a firstborn because there was another child, even though he was a C-section. By the way, the laws of C-section have effect in bris. You can't have a bris on Shabbos if there's a C-section child born because it's not considered a normal birth to violate the Shabbos, have a bris or on Yom Kippur. You, can't, you don't have a pijon aben, C-section, and many other C-section applications. Here, too, a C-section is not considered a firstborn for inheritance purposes. Here's a nice scenario. There was a non-Jew who had children, and then he and his children converted. Even though he has a biological firstborn, for inheritance purposes, he has no firstborn. But a Jew who had a son, although this child's mother was a maidservant, which we talked about earlier, was not considered a Jew, or a non-Jewish mother, is not called his son, the one who follows from a Jewish mother, is considered a firstborn, for inheritance, and does take double. What if the firstborn son was mamzer, an illegitimate child? We learned earlier in chapter 1, for the purposes of inheritance, illegitimate children are children, and again, when we talk about illegitimate, we mean the child born of an adulterous or an incestuous relationship. Still, a child is a child. He takes twice, double. As it says, Perhaps that's what the Chumash intended when he was talking about the mother, that this, the wife that the men hated. Because it was a, a whole relationship was, problem, was problematic. It says he will recognize the firstborn of the woman he hates. She was despised in her marriage. The Torah despised the marriage. It was, an, it was an inappropriate marriage. It was not a real marriage. Because you can't have marriage. A man can never marry his sister. Impossible. It's not a marriage. If a man does marry his sister, what does he do? He goes to therapy. But he doesn't need a divorce. The same goes with an adulterous relationship. You can't marry someone else's wife. She's married away. So certainly, if this child was the son of a divorced woman who married a Kohen, or a Chalitza wife, we learned extensively earlier, Chalitza is a Leverite ritual, who married a Kohen, it's not appropriate, but at least there was a real marriage, certainly this is considered a son. Now the question is, who can determine firstborn? And by the way, I must say that I've been thinking a lot about this, because in today's world, we have, uh, we're way ahead of the game, we have DNA testing. Who knows who is who's firstborn? I mean, who really knows? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. So, how do you determine by Jewish law? That's the purpose of this paragraph. Today you can take a DNA test and you can know everything. There are three people who are believed to say this is a firstborn. One is Chaya, the midwife, the obstetrician, the one who delivers a baby, OBGYN. The Ima and the child's mother can say this is a firstborn. You know, she had triplets, this is the one firstborn. The Aviv and the father of the baby can say this is my firstborn. So you want to know who can voice an opinion? The one who brings the child into the world, the midwife, the mother of the child, or the father. Now, what about time frame? Chaya, the midwife, when can she voice an opinion beyond immediately? Why? Because she's there. She mumrah the midwife said, this baby came first. Ah, and then she believed. Forever we know that this is the firstborn of this father. Imei the mother, all the seven days of birth. The mother is believed for seven days to say, this is the firstborn. Because for seven days the mother is obsessed with her baby and she won't let her baby go and she knows the baby. By the way, you know what they do today when a baby is born in a hospital setting? Immediately they put a little band and a this and a that and fingerprints and they can Why? Why? You know, I, I got mixed up with Bill Gates when we were born. Why? Because babies get mixed up. So they want to put a band on the mother and a band on the baby and they're hocking and clopping. This is a big problem. So the mother is trusted for seven days. All of you, the father, a father keeps an eye out on his firstborn. The father knows this is my, my kaddishal, my firstborn, lo'elam forever. Even if the father comes along, takes this kid off the street, he finds him in the YMCA, which is Young Men's Chabad Association. And he says, you see this kid? Who? He's really my son. He's my firstborn. Now he's believed. Why do you keep it a secret all these years? We know why. So also if he said, with regard to somebody who we consider to be his firstborn, that he, we always considered this kid to be his firstborn. And he comes over and he says, my dear friends, I got news. He's not my firstborn. Namani's believe. The father has the information. Because we're talking about paternal firstborn. Now what happens to all The father, God forbid, in our world, God forbid, has a stroke and loses his ability to speak. There's a system in Torah, which we learned about, for divorce, where we ask the person who loses his power of speech questions, and we ask him test questions until we're sure that he's responding properly. We say, is it light outside? Is today Monday? We ask him all kinds of questions. Is George Washington the president of the United States? And so on and so forth. And then we ask him, do you want to divorce your wife? So it's established that he knows what he's doing. So also here, there's a system of question and head shaking. 
In Roma, as if he hinted, a cousin of the Roaches, this is his firstborn son, and he's a Nathan Pishnai, and he does get to take a double portion. Test Zion 16, what if two witnesses came along and they said, they heard this guy's father, saying, I heard this kid, this person, his father to say, he is, he isn't. Or he said something which we can deduce that this and this is his son, and these are two kosher witnesses who testify something that's definitive, and he's a Nathan Pishnai, in other words, two people come and say, we heard Mr. A say, this is really my firstborn. Even though the father never said specifically, or as some of my kids would say, pacifically, this is my firstborn, but he made a statement which alluded to the fact that it is his firstborn, 17, the closing. Paragraph of chapter 2. They heard the father say, they heard the father say, this is my firstborn son. Isn't that good enough? The answer is no. That's insufficient testimony to have this son. Regarding whom the father says, this is my firstborn son. Not enough to have him inherit double. Why? Because there are different definitions of firstborn. Maybe when the father said that, he meant the firstborn to his mother. The firstborn to a mother have many halachic ramifications, as we learned. We learned extensively the laws of firstborn. Maybe that's what the father meant. I'm sure you know anybody has to say, my son, my firstborn, meaning my firstborn. End of chapter 2.